You're listening to the Good Samaritan Anglican Church Podcast. The following sermon was recorded on the third Sunday of Advent, December 15th, 2019. A reading from the Gospel of Matthew. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to them, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. In business, there's an important principle having to do with expectations. And it's called managing expectations. And the basic business principle is that you want to uh, under-promise and over-deliver instead of the opposite which is to overpromise and underdeliver. Right? That's a that's a recipe for business failure. But the other is a recipe for business success, one among many, is to underpromise and overdeliver. So for a, a short while I had a photography uh, side hustle business. I was a, a freelance photographer. I would do uh, little little event photography gigs here and there. And the basic principle in photography is that you want to under-promise and over-deliver. So if you tell your client that you will deliver to them 200 images, you want to give them, you know, three or 400 images. If you tell them that you will touch up five images, you want to touch up 12 or 15 images. And so when you give them the final product, they say, wow, he said he was going to do this, and what he actually gave me is so much more. Because the secret is people love getting something for free, right? But if you have the opposite, even if what you end up delivering to the client 
is far better than the competitor, if you told them one thing and you gave them something else, they're going to feel gypped. And they won't be satisfied. Even if what you did deliver is far better than what everybody else would have given them. And this same principle about expectations is important in all of our relationships. In all of our relationships, whether it's friendships or especially in marriage, expectations play a crucial role, especially unspoken expectations. Because if you have unspoken expectations, let's say of your spouse, and you're expecting them to do one thing, but you've never said anything about that to your spouse, and then they don't do what you were expecting them to do, and then you get mad at them for not doing what you expected them to do, well, how could you have expected them to do it if you never communicated your expectation? And yet this happens over and over and over again in marital communication, as well as communication among friends. Expectations can lead to all kinds of conflict and resentment, especially unspoken expectations. In the gospel passage today, we have a situation that's again dealing with expectations. Here we're dealing with John the Baptist and his expectations as well as the expectations of the people towards Jesus. Now just to set the scene a little bit, when John sends his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Um, He's doing so from prison. That's why he doesn't show up himself and ask Jesus this question. John had been thrown into prison for speaking out publicly against uh, King Herod and his unbiblical practices with regard to marriage. He had taken his brother's wife to be his own wife, and his brother had not died. So this was a big scandal in the day. He got away with it. Nobody did anything about it except for John the Baptist, who was quite fond of speaking out against Herod and this immorality that he had committed. So John gets thrown into into prison, and that's a story for another day. He gets beheaded. I think you know the rest of that story. So anyway, now John is in prison, and he's looking at Jesus's ministry from afar. He's hearing stories about what Jesus has done, and he sends his disciples to ask this question. John's role, as we talked about last week, was to prepare the way for the Lord to come. That's what Isaiah the prophet had foretold about the ministry of John the Baptist. That was John the Baptist's self-identified ministry. He was one, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And so he is out there preaching, baptizing people in the River Jordan, and his basic message is repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. John was sure that Jesus was the Messiah. He knew it even while he was still in his mother's womb. We have that wonderful story of Mary visiting Elizabeth, who was the mother of John the Baptist, when they were both pregnant. And John the Baptist leaps in the womb of his mother, Elizabeth, at the news that Mary is pregnant with Jesus. So this is something that John the Baptist knew deep down inside about Jesus. He knew that Jesus was the one who was to come. He knew that Jesus was the Messiah. And that truth was confirmed at Jesus' baptism when John baptizes Jesus in the Jordan River and the heavens open up and the voice of the Father says, this is my beloved Son. And the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. John sees this. He's a witness to this. It's yet another confirmation that Jesus is this one who is to come. But now John was not so sure. 
His expectations were not lining up with what he was seeing. John had heard about the deeds of the Christ. That's what it says at the beginning of this this passage today. It says, Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? So what was it about these deeds that prompted this question? What were these deeds? Well, the deeds were likely the sum total of everything Jesus had been doing in his ministry. It would involve his preaching. It would involve his teaching. It would certainly involve his miracles, his challenging of the various parties of his day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians. It would have involved all of that. So what about those deeds of Jesus, which were pretty remarkable, and he was gathering crowds around him, what about those deeds would have struck John as not meeting up with his expectations of the Messiah? What might John's expectations have been? Well, first of all, as we just said, John's ministry was all about repentance. He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So perhaps he was expecting that the Christ, the Messiah, would continue on and maybe even uh, take it to a new level, this, this ministry of repentance for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In fact, if we look back at last week's gospel in Matthew chapter 3, that's kind of the picture that we see John painting. John's message is, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, but he points forward to the ministry of the Christ, and he says, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. It sounds a little bit like Jonathan Edwards, sinners in the hands of an angry God, like dangling insects over the flames of hell. Come, It's a fire and brimstone kind of a, a sermon, and that's John's ministry. He was a fire and brimstone kind of a preacher. Repent! His winnowing fork, what's a winnowing fork? It's, it's for separating the chaff from the, the wheat. They would use the fork to throw it up in the air and the, the chaff would blow away and the wheat would settle down and then you'd have the product of your farming. He was separating the wheat from the chaff. Or that's what he perceived the Messiah would do, separate the wheat from the chaff. And of course Jesus does this, but he doesn't do it in quite the way that John is expecting. Jesus has a ministry of compassion. A ministry of compassion for sinners. A ministry of compassion for the sick and the friendless and the needy. It's a ministry of healing and restoration. And so it's not a fire and brimstone kind of a preaching. He certainly challenges sin. We see that quite a few times in the ministry of Jesus. But even as he challenges sin, he welcomes the sinner. Maybe that's what was not lining lining up with John's expectations. Or maybe it was the fact that if he was the forerunner to Jesus, John the Baptist, Elijah, the one who was to proclaim the way of the Lord, maybe it was his expectation that if he was that forerunner, that maybe he shouldn't be sitting in prison awaiting death at the hands of Herod. That maybe he should be out there assisting the Messiah, helping him in his ministry of the winnowing fork, separating the wheat and the chaff. Maybe his expectation was that he wouldn't have ended up in prison or that Jesus would somehow get him out of prison. What did the people expect from Jesus? 
Most people, even the 12 apostles who were closest to Jesus, expected the Messiah to be a kingly figure who would lead Israel to a victory against the Romans and reestablish sovereign rule for Israel. Again, looking back at John the Baptist's own words, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There were expectations of a kingdom. The Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, was supposed to be a son of David, someone who would reestablish the line of David as king over Israel. There was no real king. There were people who were sort of like kings, but they were really governors set up by the Romans, hopefully with some kind of a little bit of a Jewish connection so that they might not be rejected quite so easily. That's what Herod was. So there was this expectation that a real king would come, a righteous king, one who would rule Israel from Israel for Israel. In Luke chapter 24, we see an interesting scene just after Jesus' resurrection. Uh, I don't normally talk about this in Advent. Normally I talk about this uh, Easter, during Easter season. Um, But in Luke chapter 24, we see two men walking along the way on their way to Emmaus. And Jesus, they don't know that it's Jesus, but Jesus joins them on the road to Emmaus. And he's having a a conversation with them, and one man named Cleopas uh, is talking about uh, these things that have happened in Jerusalem. And Jesus says, well, what things? He wants to know for, for specific, what exactly is he referring to? And he says, are you the only one in all of Israel that doesn't know the, the things that have happened in Jerusalem, how, how Jesus, uh, who, who, you know, he was, our, he was our guy and he died on the cross. And then listen specifically to what he says. This is chapter 24, verses 19 to 21. And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God, and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But listen to this. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And of course, the implication is that he wasn't, that their hopes had been dashed, that this one who they had put so much expectation into, this Jesus, was crucified on a cross, and their hope was now gone. That's an example of this kind of expectation that the people had of Jesus, even his closest disciples. These people whom he had told at least three times that he was going to die on the cross. In no uncertain terms, that's what he told them. And yet they couldn't see it because their expectations were pointing to something different. Going back to Matthew chapter 11 uh, and jumping towards the end of the, the passage, Jesus says, but to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, but you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. Well, what does he mean by that? Seems a little bit cryptic, doesn't it? It's probably referring to the kinds of games that children would normally play in the marketplace. And just like children today play games that kind of mirror what they see their adults doing, um, they, you know, 
Favorite toys for children include uh, miniature versions of pots and pans in a little kitchen by the side so they can pretend to be cooking in a kitchen, or guns so that they can pretend to be in great battles. I see my, my sons running all over the field behind our house with guns and swords pretending that they're you know, army soldiers going after the, the great enemy. They like to imitate what they see adults in the world doing. And so similarly, in Jesus' day, it would have been a common game for for children to sing happy songs and pretend there was a wedding going on and, uh, and, um, and as it says, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. That would be a reference to the kind of celebrations that would happen around a wedding celebration. Or we sang a dirge and you did not mourn. They would have uh, mimicked what the adults did and when someone died and they had mourning in the streets and they would have pretended to be mourning. So what's Jesus saying by this? To what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates, we played a flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. And Jesus is saying this is what the children are doing to him and to John the Baptist, the children of this generation. They have these expectations. We're going to play the flute and you're going to dance for us. We're going to sing a dirge and you're going to mourn with us. We're going to sing a celebration song and you're going to be king for us. And you're going to kick out those Romans. You're going to fulfill our expectations. He follows this by saying, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they said, He has a demon. And the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. What's he saying? He's saying, well, John came doing one thing and you accused him of having a demon. And I come doing the opposite thing and you accuse me as well because neither of us are fulfilling your expectations. But wisdom is justified by her deeds, Jesus says. When we have expectations of God, we're getting it backwards. The question is, what are God's expectations of himself and what are God's expectations of us? What do you expect from God in your own life? Do you have any unspoken expectations? Any things that you expect God to do that you've never really talked to God about and that he's never really promised you, but you still expect him to do it? I think we all have these kinds of unspoken expectations with God. In response to John's question, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Jesus shows how he's doing exactly what he promised and exactly what was prophesied about him. Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Did Jesus do those things? Absolutely he did those things. They're written right here in the Gospel of Matthew and in the other Gospels. These are the things that Jesus was doing. Why does he say that? Because it fulfills the expectation of the prophets. We heard in Isaiah chapter 35 this morning, verses 5 through 6, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. 
And then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. This is a prophecy about the Christ, the Messiah. Did Jesus do these things? Absolutely. And that's what Jesus is saying here. This is what I'm doing. It's the same thing that the prophets said I would be doing, and these are the things that I'm doing. This is only one example of a huge number of prophecies about the Messiah that are fulfilled by Jesus. He does it over and over and over again. And Matthew is particularly keen to point these prophecies out, these connections between the Old Testament and the ministry of Jesus. He loves to show that Jesus came doing exactly what the Old Testament said that he would. Jumping down to verse 6, when Jesus finishes saying all these things that he's doing, and he says, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. The gospel can be offensive. We see this all the time in some of the, the conflicts between Christianity and our culture today. People are offended by the message of the scriptures. They're offended by calling sin what it is, sin, and by not suggesting that our morality is, is a thing of our own making. But that's actually the nature of the fall. The gospel is offensive to this world. The gospel means good news. How can good news be offensive? It's not actually the good news that's offensive, it's the bad news that's offensive. It's the bad news that's the prerequisite to the good news. And the bad news is that we're all sinners. We all deep down desire to decide what is right and wrong for ourselves. We all deep down desire exactly what Adam and Eve desired. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil that was desirable to make one wise, Eve said, buying into the lies of the serpent. When we decide for ourselves what is right and what is wrong, we put ourselves in the place of God. And this can cause improper expectations of our relationship with God. When we think that we know what's best for us, and we're perplexed when we don't get whatever it is that we want, that's exactly what we're doing. We're taking our expectations and putting them on God. We are telling God what he should do for us. But the good news is that Jesus came to save us. To save us from sin and death, but also to save us from ourselves. Because our sin separates us from God. And Jesus came to restore our broken relationships with God. He sacrificed himself on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins so that we don't have to. But more than that, Jesus offers us abundant life. He has a plan for our lives, and it's far better than anything that we could come up with on our own. He doesn't promise that his plan will be without suffering. He doesn't promise that his plan will always be smooth sailing. But he does promise peace and joy. There's a deep and abiding satisfaction in knowing that I am in exactly in the place where God wants me to be, and that I have a place and purpose in his grand master plan for this world. That brings me peace, 
And that brings me joy. And I hope it does the same for you. When we cook up our own expectations of God and others, what we cook up is a plan for disappointment. But when we rest in God's promises, what we find is a plan filled with hope, peace, and joy. Returning to Isaiah, this is the conclusion of what we read this morning. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This is the promise of our God. Let us rest in it. Let's pray. Lord, as we wait upon you, we acknowledge that we all have expectations of you. Some come from your word and some come from our own wants and desires in our hearts. And so we pray, Lord, that you would cleanse our hearts, that you would help us to desire what you desire for us, for us and for our lives. We pray that you would help us to desire what you desire for this church, that you'd help us to desire what you desire for our families and help our expectations to be founded upon your word. Lord, we put our hope, we put our trust in you and we joyfully await your return. We joyfully await that day when we, the ransomed of the Lord, shall return and come into Zion with singing. And we joyfully await the everlasting joy that you promise will be upon our heads. Help us to wait upon you, Lord. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. This has been a production of Good Samaritan Anglican Church in Middleburg, Florida. For more sermons, sermon notes, and information about our congregation, please visit www.goodsamaritananglican.org slash sermons. If this podcast has been helpful to you, please subscribe and leave us a review with your favorite podcast player. Thank you for listening. God bless you.